Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. I had this insight that the very top 1% seem to be working a lot less than that 5% below that are grinding it through in the library, and the secret seemed to be is they cared a lot about process. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. This is episode number 49, which is really hard to believe when I started doing this almost a year ago. I didn't think I'd keep going up to 49, and it's actually the second to last episode in season one. I don't want to say I saved the last two for best, but they're both exceptional and really, really fun. This episode is about Cal Newport. I've called it What You Thought You Knew About School, Careers, and Work is Completely Wrong. I like the way Cal Newport thinks, and I like the way he writes. When he was a university student, he noticed that the top students work less than the very good students, not more. And he wanted to know why. So he interviewed a few dozen of the straight-A students and discovered that while they put in fewer hours, the time they spent was actually much more intense and therefore effective than it was for other students. And then he wrote a book about that. When he was applying to graduate school, he wanted to understand what made for a great career. All he heard were things like, quote, follow your passion, unquote. But he didn't know how or why that was. So he went back to the research literature and even things like Steve Jobs' famous commencement address at Stanford and learned just how wrong this common advice was. And then he wrote a book about that. When he started working, he noticed the disconnect between the need to focus and work especially at a cognitive challenge, at a tough challenge where you got to use your brain and the nonstop streaming demands that keep coming at us, you know, from technology of all sorts and self-inflicted, of course. He started to look into this and the result was a book called Deep Work, really a landmark book and how to be more effective at whatever you do. The theme of digital dominance over our lives continued when Cal wrote a subsequent book called Digital Minimalism. And he's actually working on a book right now that has a tentative title, A World Without Email. Now, that's a really good title. I've written several books, Why Smart Executives Fail and Super Bosses, both really great titles. And I think a title of a book in 2020 that says a world without email is going to be a winner. So you can see what I'm talking about. Cal is really provides an education in modern life. All this from someone not yet 40 years old and with probably some of the best work still to come. Cal Newport is a professor of computer science at Georgetown University, a New York Times bestselling author of books on work and on life. This is a podcast episode for which you may want to keep a notepad nearby to capture all the tips and insights Cal shares with me as we talk about his work and his journey. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here on the Georgetown campus in Washington, D.C. with Cal Newport. Hi, Cal. Hey, Sid. It's great to have you on the podcast and chatting about uh, your books and your life and your ideas. And I've been looking forward to this because one of my students, one of my MBA students, I have them write op-eds for one of their assignments. And she wrote about how she read a book that really impacted her life and it was deep work, oh. which is nice to hear. I know. And you gave her a good grade, I hope. It goes without saying. <laughs> uh, and so that was the first time I had heard about it. And to be fair to me, it had just come out, I think. <laughs> so I right away bought it and I have to do some more catch up on a couple other of your books. But some of your earliest or first books were about excellence at work and at school, actually, Yeah. when you get right down to it. And what I found interesting about that is that rather than just doing it, in other words, rather than just being excellent at school, which 
you have to be if you're going to end up at MIT in a PhD program. You decided to write about it, which is a choice. And the question is why? Why did you decide to go in that direction so early in your career? Yeah, it was early. My first two books, which were aimed at students, I largely wrote at Dartmouth, actually, as an undergraduate. So the first book I wrote entirely at Dartmouth. And the second book, I started as a senior at Dartmouth and finished during my first year of grad school. Right, people, I guess, sorry to interrupt, but people are going to wonder, how do you have time to do that? Don't you go to the frat parties and the football games huh. and all the rest? Yeah, that's true. But the nice benefit of writing books about being a more efficient student is it makes you a more efficient student. So <laughs> well said. I was famous for not, I never did an all-nighter during my time at Dartmouth. I, I rarely studied late at night and I felt like I had plenty of time to write. It was actually what started me down that path was entrepreneurship if you'll believe it. Hmm. So before I went to college, this would have been the late 1990s, this was the first dot-com boom. So the original sort of e-commerce, web van, pets.com boom. And I had a business because part of the side effect of the exuberance surrounding the first dot-com boom is that for some reason people would give money to 16 and 17-year-olds to do things like web consulting or website design because they just assumed if you're young, you must know something about technology. As a business lesson, that's a bad idea. <laughs> but in 1999, you could have your dad drop you off and, and have a, an ill-fitting suit and you know get a five-figure check to do web consulting. So I had a company when I was a teenager. And so I was reading lots of business books at a very young age because I need to know how do I market? How do I manage my time? How do I put together client mm-hmm. portals? This type of thing. So mm-hmm. I was used to business literature at an unusually young age. Then I go to college. I show up, I have a lot of student loans accruing, so naturally I think, how do I do this well? I had been trained by the business book section of Barnes & Noble that if you want to do something well, you get books where people say, here's how the best people do it. Those books didn't exist for students, Hmm. at least in the late 90s, early 2000s. The general sense from the publishing industry is that students would be turned off if you got too serious, and if you focus too much on results, they would think it wasn't cool. And so one of the best-selling student books at the time was called The Naked Roommate. There's another one called Major in Success, where the guy was in a uh, funny pose on the cover of the book. He was a motivational speaker. Uh-huh. And this is what they were selling. So this is crazy. We should write, or someone should write, student success books like business books. Just no nonsense. Like, look, I went out, I interviewed 50 students. They all got good grades. Here's how they study. Best practice. Classic stuff in the business world didn't exist in the college world. I thought that'd be a great idea. One of my entrepreneur friends said, well, why don't you just write it? And that's how that started. Mm. And did you actually go and do that with the interviewing of other classmates? To add some context, when I was at Dartmouth, I was a writer. So I was the editor of the Jack-O-Lantern, the humor magazine, Mm. and a columnist for the Daily Dartmouth newspaper. So I was writing a lot. So I was dared to write these books by my entrepreneur friend. And so what I did is I found an agent, a family friend. There's a fiction agent. So I said, look, I don't want to pitch you to represent me. All I want to do is pick your brain. How does the publishing industry work? And so I got on the phone with this agent and said, explain it to me. And she laid out all the details. Here's how books are pitched. Here's how books are bought. Here's what someone like you would have to do to have a chance at selling a book on this topic to this market. So then I had a game plan. And so what I actually did was I went out and sold magazine articles for very small student-oriented publications. And I used those magazine articles as an excuse to do the initial interviewing for those books. And so by the time I went to uh, pitch agents on my book idea, I could say, look, I've done the interviewing. And I can give you a sense. I can give you a really detailed chapter outline. And so I got the lay of the land, and Mm -hmm. then I just executed that plan. That's great. And do you have any trouble finding that agent? Or they said, well, this is a college kid. This is the wrong person. Because, you know, there's a legendary stories about 30 agents, 30 publishers say no, and then it sells 20 million copies. Yeah. So I don't know. I have an end of one problem. 
problem here. So the first agent I approached was a great fit. Now, partially this was by plan. My sort of secret sauce, which I always tell the potential authors today, is what I did is I found the relevant books already on the market. I went to the acknowledgement sections and where they thank the agent. And so I figured out, oh, this is an agent that represented the right books mm. that match what I'm pitching. Right. There's a particular business book that was out at the time that was popular, and I wanted to use that format, mm-hmm. but for college books. And I found out that the agent that repped that book, her agency was also repping someone on doing some college books, and it was like the perfect agent for what I wanted to yeah. do. And then I could make the pitch, like, you are the person for this idea. And she saw it. And she, and she saw it. Well, you know, I was, what, 20? <laughs> so she said, yeah, let's see some writing. Yeah. I was, again, a columnist. I was the editor of a pretty... I had it. I had it, yeah. And so what are some of the takeaways from that early writing? You mean what in terms of the the lessons? What's that best advice for parents listening and more likely uh, young people listening to podcasts? Yeah, the big insight I got, my best-selling book from that period was my second one, which was called How to Be a Straight-A Student or How to Become a Straight-A Student. And I interviewed 50 straight-A students. Hmm. And I was like, here's what they do. And I was inspired to write that book, by the way, at Dartmouth because I was a very systematic student. I went through a period where I experimented with systems, time management systems, study systems. How do I study for math? How do I study for art history? What's different? What works? What doesn't? I was very systematic and it completely overhauled my experience. After my freshman year, I got a 4-0 in every quarter until my senior spring in which I had one A minus and my study time had dropped dramatically. And in part because I was very systematic. And so I was an early inductee in the Phi Beta Kappa. So this is like at the end of your junior year, the 1% of students in your class with the highest GPA. So you get to go to this reception and meet the 1% of your class with the highest GPAs. Mm -hmm. And what I saw at that reception is, oh, these weren't the grinds. Like, I knew some of these people. Like, I know you from, like, a a frat, and I know you from the humor magazine. They were actually interesting people, relatively relaxed people. I had this insight that the very top 1% seem to be working a lot less than that 5% below that are grinding it through in the library. And the secret seemed to be is they cared a lot about process. They cared about the Mm -hmm. art of what's the best way to study, what works, what doesn't. 99% of students don't. To them, studying is just a general verb. I go to the library, I grind. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, I want to reduce my feeling of guilt by how much hard work I did. These guys cared. And once you had systems, the amount of time it requires to prepare for things falls so precipitously that you end up more relaxed. I used to call it the paradox of the relaxed Rhodes Scholar because I interviewed a lot of Rhodes Scholars for the first book. They're often a lot more relaxed than the other students around them because to get to the very highest level, you have to get very structured. But once you get very structured, the work requirement actually falls beyond what a lot of people are doing. So the obvious question also here is whether these Rhodes Scholars or these people that were the straight-A students... Were they not smarter than everybody else? My end of one example with myself is that I had this huge transformation in my GPA between my freshman year and the three years that followed. I don't think I got smarter in Mm -hmm. some sort of fundamental or genetic sense over the summer between my freshman and sophomore Mm -hmm. year. But the one thing I did change, the independent variable here that shifted was I got more systematic about my study habits. Yeah. So this is such an interesting idea because you're talking about process engineering for studying. Absolutely. Which in business, that idea is like very, very common idea. How do you produce? How do you become more productive? How do you create the output with the least input is kind of your goal. That's called optimizing. Yes. And in many facets of everyday life, we don't do that. And you're talking about school. I'm sure if we thought about it, probably it's probably, well, for work and your subsequent work, your subsequent writing as well, deep work, it's not about working day and night either. Yeah. Well, I'm writing a new book right now that really looks at knowledge work. So forget school, knowledge work is much more important. We don't do process engineering and knowledge work. Hmm. There's almost no formal academic thinking on productivity maximization 
in knowledge work. I've tracked down a few of the professors who worked on it, and they basically said, I've given up on it. So it, not, not to leap ahead, but it's an interesting, you know, process engineering even fell out of favor in the industrial sector in the 80s and 90s once it became a cover for just sort of relentless cost-cutting and, and right. firing people. It never even had a chance in the knowledge work sector. And so, yeah, by the time you get down to students, no one thinks about it at all. Except for, and just as like an interesting aside, a huge unexpected market for my How to Become a Straight-A Student book, non-traditional students. Students coming back later in life to go to college mm-hmm. and military veterans mm-hmm. coming back after deployment on, let's say, the GI Bill. Because they've been out in the world and done professional work and are a little bit older, they are absolutely of the mindset, yeah, how do I do this well? You know, I don't have a lot of time. How do I study? What's the right way to do it? And they're a huge consumer of a process engineering approach. And by the way, they tend to do very, very well. This has to do, in a sense, with expertise. Most of us think we're experts at what we're doing yeah. at a certain level. And if you're a student, you've been doing it for a long time, and you're good enough to get into a top school, you've got certain talent. And so you keep on going. And then what you're saying is people coming from a different view, they know they don't have that expertise. And so they're exactly the type of people that are ripe to say, i, I got to figure out how to do this. Yeah, and they do great. There's several scholarship programs, for example, that use that straight-A student book, and the students that take it seriously dominate with their GPAs. If you come That's at fantastic. it with the fresh mindset yeah, of, yeah, yeah. yeah, what's the right way to be a student, they really will trounce the private school kids, the boarding school kids who really have been taught the cram method, and they feel like they really know what they're doing. You got to cram. We know how to cram. We're used to cramming. We're used to all-nighters. You can run circles around them. That is such a cool idea, isn't yeah. it? It's a very hopeful idea for a lot of people, yeah. but it's also kind of a poetic justice thing. You got to work hard in a lot of things. That makes sense. And I've always said that. But there's, you know, people say you got to work smart. Yeah. That's a cliche, but that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, there's huge inefficiencies in student productivity. If we want to use the business metaphors, there's massive inefficiencies. Can you give us an example or two of what students could do to be more productive following some of yeah. the lessons you learned? Well, there's two key things. One is active recall trumps everything else. By far the most effective way to learn material is to try to replicate it from scratch without referencing notes as if you were lecturing a class. Significantly more effective at seeing minting ideas or advancing your understanding than passive recall, which is reading your textbook, reading your notes, highlighting. Active recall, like an order of magnitude more effective. The other thing that turned out to be huge was the equation that academic work produced or studying completed is the product of time spent and intensity of focus. And what a lot of the relaxed road scholars do is they pump up the intensity focus piece of that equation. I mean, if you are completely isolated, I used to study in the stacks of Dana Biomedical. They have some great sort of at the end of each stack, a desk integrated into the bookshelf. And actually, the motion sensors turn off the lights after inactivity. And so it's just you with your incandescent light in a dark bookcase, a dark stack or whatever. That's why I used to study at Dartmouth. If you pump up the intensity of focus... You need less hours to get the same amount of work done. So if you're incredibly intensely focused, no smartphone, no email, this is what I'm doing, and you do active recall, that's a huge advantage. And then the other thing you see is time control. They move their time around like a chessboard. I have these deadlines coming up. Mm -hmm. I have these papers I have to write. I know roughly how much work these things require. Let me move the pieces around on the board. Like I should start this here. On this day, I'm going to begin working on this. They don't tend to wait until a deadline looms and then say, oh, panic. Let me try to get this thing done. It's due tomorrow. So we've got some production planning. 
The production planning, yeah. Then the production, the actual steps of the process are made more efficient through right. intensity and active recall. The intensity part is really in it. So some people can do this. They focus better than others. Yep. Okay. And you also said, you know, get rid of the email, get rid of the phone and all that. Any other suggestions on how to up your game when it comes to intensity and focus? Yeah. So when I was at MIT, so now I'm a grad student, because these were the books I was writing, I did a lot of work with students on how to do these things better. And in particular, a lot of MIT students, but I also, I went around and talked, I used to talk at a lot of colleges about this stuff. And I had a method. We would do interval training with undergraduates. And the idea was you would start at 20 minutes and you have a timer. All right, 20 minutes, concentrate as hard as you can, no context switching. So no glancing at phones, no glancing at screens or whatever. Maintain your focus on what you're doing. If you don't, stop the timer, start it over. It doesn't count. Most people can do 20 minutes. So you wait till you're comfortable with 20 minutes and we would add 10 more minutes to it. Mm -hmm. All right, now we're doing 30 minutes. Let's get you really comfortable with, I can sustain my focus for 30 minutes on something really hard with no context switch. And after about two weeks, we'd up it by another 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. You do this for a semester, you get to where I wanted students to get, which was comfort with 90-minute sessions of intense concentration. So you could, in about three months, take the average sort of fundamentally distracted undergraduate and make them a significantly better concentrator in much the same way as you could take someone who is out of shape and say, give me three months and I'll get you running, let's say, like an eight-minute mile. Right. Yeah. Right. Did anything like mindfulness or meditation, things people talk about, especially in the last five years, did that, any of that play into your ability to focus? It's probably helpful. But my take, when I work on intensity of focus and work, be it students or be it knowledge work, yeah. is I'm very influenced by transfer theory. There's a lot of interesting work, if you look at the research surrounding learning, that says we don't transfer abilities as well as we think. So we have this idea that, well, maybe if I meditate, I can transfer this general comfort with controlling my attention over to focusing when I'm working on this particular type of assignment. But we know from a lot of learning theory that it's probably more effective to specifically practice exactly what you want to get better at. So specifically practice concentrating on exactly a type of work you want to be better concentrating at. And so I used to preach this method called productive meditation, where you would go for a walk and you would hold a professional problem in your head. You would try to make progress on the problem just in your head. So no, you can't look at anything. You just have to think about it. And then when your attention wanders, I stole this from mindfulness meditation, you just notice that and bring it back. But what you're specifically practicing is not just observing your thoughts, but you're practicing actually holding complex ideas surrounding your particular work in your head, mm -hmm. holding those variables, making progress. Mm -hmm. And so what you're specifically practicing is concentration on exactly the type of work you do. Yeah. I wonder whether these techniques are helpful when we start talking about some of the outliers that are, I don't know whether we call them geniuses or what, yeah. the people that come up with really out-of-the-box creative ideas. Because you made me think about it when you go for a walk and you, know, you, can, you let things percolate and you think about things and you let the brain do its work and you don't worry about it. Well, you worry about it, but you don't worry about it. Do you learn anything about that type of problem solving? Yeah, well, I mean, for sure, I was heavily influenced by the time I wrote Deep Work, which gets much more into the value of focus. Right before I wrote that book, I'd been doing my doctoral training at the theory group at MIT in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Lab. And the theory group is a, the professors in this group are exactly those people. Hmm. Exactly those people. So it's not a huge group of professors, but we, I mean, surrounding me, there was, what, two or three MacArthur Genius Award winners, two or three Turing Award winners. I mean, these were the brains. And they all optimized thinking, thought cycles, concentration thought cycles, 
thought cycles where you just want to let things go in the background. They all prioritized it. It was their tier one skill. They knew this is all that mattered. And so I was very influenced by watching these people at the extremes. You know, they just had this notion of, yeah, solving a problem. You know, let's go back to production process terminology, solving a hard problem. This is probably going to take somewhere between 20 to 200 thought hour cycles before a breakthrough comes in. Great. My day better be set up to have lots of these sort of uninterrupted thought cycles. There's no shortcut. I got to accrue these. I got to walk. I got to think. I got to stare at the whiteboard. I got to think some more. I got to talk to some people. I need to work with them at the whiteboard. Then it was like a raw numbers game. If you could spend more time thinking you would eventually produce right. more, right? It's a production process. It's not an accidental genius model is what you're talking about. Yeah. You're working at it, but you're working in a particular way. Yeah. So what you got there at this very highest end, as far as I could tell, was a combination of obviously some hardware. You know, they won some lottery on the hardware. I mean, these were people that these brains could do these very specific things really well. But to get to that level, they combined that hardware with building their entire work experience around making the most of it, which is what you see in athletics. I mean, I Olympic caliber was, athletes. It's yeah. exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, you they have, you know, hardware hardware advantages, something right. their fast twitch muscles are this, or they're a certain height for basketball, but the real superstars, it's that plus they optimize everything in their life about making the most out of those advantages. Now, what I often argue, though, if you look at something like student life or knowledge work, no one is doing any cognitive optimizing. And so the advantage you get from trying to hmm. optimize, it's like, bigger, it, it? It, yeah, hmm. it's going to swamp the advantages that, you know, the guy at the desk next to you might have some sort of natural hardware advantage that maybe makes them at the extreme, maybe slightly better at doing this type of work, but he's not optimizing at all. So if you just look at the stuff under your control, you could probably have a huge leap. It would be like being in a world of athletics where no one trained and you're the only one training. Hmm. You're going to be a lot better than a lot of people that maybe have better hardware than you if you're actually out there hmm. taking 100 jump shots and running your laps. Right, right. And hard work has got, still got to be part of that. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Anecdotally, you always hear about it. You know, the best players are the ones on the field before everyone else. The last one off, they said that about Wayne Gretzky. They said that about Michael Jordan. So that's still there. It's absolutely true. It's what the superstars do. So, that, you know, there's, there's a whole interesting corner of performance psychology, deliberate practice theory that gets into this. Like, what's required to reach mastery in complex things? And the answer seems to be you have to practice in ways that are designed to stretch you past where you're comfortable. You have to put in the hours, basically. You have to not just do the thing, but you got to find the thing. What piece of this am I not great at yet? And I'm going to hone in on that like a laser. Stretch myself. Mm -hmm. Practice deliberately again and again to get better and better. The worst thing that ever happened for that theory is that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it. Why is that? Well, because there's sort of a whole cottage industry of if Malcolm Gladwell writes about it, we're going to attack it, especially within psychology. You mean like the 10,000 hour thing. Exactly. That was kind of the worst thing that ever happened to deliberate practice theory is, you know, social psychologists don't like Gladwell because they say he's not being rigorous enough with their mm -hmm. science. And so Outliers mm -hmm. as a book, which popularized some of Anders Ericsson's ideas, helped spark a whole cottage industry within psychology of mm -hmm. trying to like push back on certain extreme elements of deliberate practice theory, which then muddied the water around deliberate practice. But that fight is actually far separated from this fundamental insight, which is unchallenged, which is getting better at something requires practice designed to stretch you past where you're comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That's the core aspect. It's not just enough to know a lot about something. It's mm -hmm. not just enough to do something a lot. You have to, at some point, actually practice in a way that makes you better. Yeah. And the superstars just do more of that. And really what you're talking about is a multiplicative and not an additive relationship here. Yeah. Kind of like your equation earlier about yeah. effort and intensity. Yeah. Time and intensity. Yeah. So in one of my books where I was talking about deliberate practice theory, I spent time with a professional guitar player because I played guitar. Mm -hmm. This guy started playing guitar at the same time I did. Mm -hmm. 
he was much, much better. He was very young when I was spending time with him. He must have been in his 20s, mm-hmm. but very renowned, right? He was actually like a very well new acoustic style guitar player, also was pretty good with bluegrass playing. And so he lived, I called it the bluegrass frat house. He lived in this house in Boston with a bunch of other bluegrass musicians, and they all lived and practiced in this old Victorian rental house. And so I went to spend some time there. And I wrote about in the book, this is what it looks like when... His name was Jordan. This is what it looks like when Jordan practices. He takes the guitar, he takes the lick he's working on, and he plays it about 15% faster than he's comfortable. And he concentrates so hard, trying to, I want to hit it. I'm playing it faster than I'm comfortable. He's giving it full concentration that he would forget to breathe. And then he would do these spasmatic sort of gasps because his body was, yeah, hey, wait, you're going to run out of air here. Just be staring at it Mm -hmm. and then these spasmatic gasps to get air in so he wouldn't pass out. That's how hard he was concentrating. And I said, oh, that is why he's a better guitar player than I am. I didn't want to do that. That's like really hard, yeah. right? The place that you're, he's never comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's always doing something harder, a little bit faster, you're comfortable stretching yourself. But if you do that, a week later, you're playing the lick cleanly faster. That's how you get better. I didn't want to do that. I wanted the jam. You know, I yeah, wanted to sure. put on and I want to hit my pentatonic scales and play my solos and play the stuff I was comfortable playing. He was doing deliberate practice. I was just playing. And that's the difference in a lot of fields. So he was willing to be uncomfortable. And that's what makes you better. And we know it for muscles. Hey, if you want to build a muscle, you know, you got to lift it till it fails. Like you have to lift it past where you're that's comfortable, right. then it'll get bigger. That's you get hypertrophy. It's the same idea. And actually, it's not exactly the same, but there is an analogy to design thinking. And when you brainstorm ideas, it's yeah. really good to have some crazy ideas out there because that now now allows you to have the innovative ideas that would have sounded crazy otherwise. Yeah. It's a kind of similar idea. Yeah, sense. set the scale and bring the components yeah. out that you can mix and match. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Very cool. Cal, we've been talking about studying and students and lots of interesting implications about how to think, how to be creative, how to do work, how to do work in a smarter and better way. You've also talked a lot and written about careers, and that's a natural transition for us here. So let me ask you about that. What does some of your work look like in that area? Well, it was a natural transition for me as well. So to nail this down to a timeline, we've been talking about these student books I wrote. This was largely the end of my undergraduate career and the first few years of my grad student career. I wrote three student books. Towards the end of my graduate student career, I was thinking about career issues because I was going to be going on the academic job market. The way I thought about it is if you do that right, it's the first and last job interview you ever do, which is both good but also kind of scary. So I had this insight that if there was ever a time in my life that I would get the most leverage Mm -hmm. out of really understanding how people build careers that are very satisfying, this was going to be the point where I'd get the most leverage Mm -hmm. before I went and did my first and last job interviews of my life. So I said, why don't I write a book about this? And so I pitched and wrote this book during my final years. I was a postdoctoral associate here, but basically my final years before going on the academic job market, I wrote this book that ended up being called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the entire premise was, I want to try to understand how people end up loving their work. And this is why I was doing it, is this is the phase I was in. Mm -hmm. And so this was around 2012 is when it came out. So soon after I started at Georgetown, but the, the bulk of the work on the book happened right before I went on the academic job market. Two quick things. First, it's exactly the same as what you did before in terms of the thinking process, the motivation. You were at a stage of life, you wanted to know about it, and you analyzed the production process again of getting a job, which is really kind of a cool thing. But the second thing that I'm sure people are listening, I'm wondering, how do you find all the time? Now, you explained how to use time well, so maybe that's your answer, but how do you find time to do all that? Yeah, well, okay, if we're talking now about if you're a PhD student later in your career, and so mainly what you're doing is writing a doctoral dissertation, Mm -hmm. if at this point you've already written three books, you're really 
efficient about writing. Mm-hmm. And, and so the reality is, and every professor will say this, when you look back at your years as a grad student, you really didn't have that much to do. I mean, how much time could you actually spend working per day on a doctoral dissertation, especially in a field like computer science, mm-hmm. where you're, this is not an original thing you've been working on for four years, and it's finally going to see the light of day in your dissertation like it might be if you're in history or in political science. I mean, in computer science, it's, you've been publishing papers since you were a first-year grad student. And so you're just taking some ideas that have already been published, have already been cited, and you're expounding on them and putting them together into a dissertation. And so this is not, it's time-consuming, but it was at most a three-hour-a-day job. You're blowing the bubble on a lot of uh, academics. A lot of PhD students are saying to their partner, I'm just too busy. I'm just... Don't let them hear it. Yeah, yeah, don't let them hear it. No, I used to actually talk about this thing in talks I used to give called the baby paradox because it... I kept noticing this unusual thing happening in the PhD students, which was it would be a PhD student who was working on dissertation, and then they would have a baby. So their time would dramatically fall. You have a baby to take care of, and you're a PhD student. So, yep. like, you're not sending them, you don't have a nanny or something like this, right? And often you would see the paradox is their dissertation would get done much sooner or much better than they expected. Why? Because once their time got really limited, they would have to get incredibly focused about, okay, I have these two hours when my partner's watching the kid. I have this hour where there's a nap. I'm all in focusing, making the most productive work yeah. that happens. And it turns out that, oh, that's actually an effective way to write dissertation and things get done. And so, yeah, not to burst the bubble, but yeah, first-year professors look back at grad students and say, well, they had it easy. Tenured professors look back at first-year professors and say, yeah, they had it easy. Full professors look back at associate professors and say, wow, you had it easy. It's the reality. As you move up in these things, you realize you know, at each lower level, you probably had a lot more time than you thought. Yeah, that's a variation on the intensity theme, but also yeah. makes me think about, I don't know if you ever read this old book, maybe in the 50s, called Parkinson's Law. It's yeah. a classic, and, yeah. Par- and Parkinson's Law itself is work expands to fulfill the time available for its completion, and you've got the inverse of that going. Yeah, Parkinson's Law is great. I studied it for a while, Cyrus Parkinson. The study actually came out of him looking at the British Civil Service and noting that in the British Civil Service that you, cre- you whatever <laughs> ammunition you, yeah, whatever you would create, they would the, the work, the bureaucracy would fill to fit yeah. the time. So that's the reality, and sure. not to be too like self-horn-blowing, you know, horn blowing, but when I was writing my dissertation, yeah, I mean, I wrote books all throughout grad school. And so I was just used to it, you know, right? And mm-hmm. there's plenty of time. Yeah. Now, what are some of the things you learned about having a perfect career? Well, so the number one piece of advice that you encounter when you look into this question is follow your passion. Yeah. So I said, okay, let me look into this advice. One of the first things you realize about it, if you do any research, is that it's really recent. So we think of it as timeless. Like, follow your passion. There must be yeah. some variation of this in ancient Greek that Plato talked about or something like this. It must be, yeah. you know, we'll find it in the Talmud somewhere or something like you this. You didn't find it, did you? No, no. It, the etymology goes back to maybe the mid-1980s. You don't yeah, start... I'm sorry, 1980s. 1980s. You don't find the phrase, follow your passion, used in the context of careers until the mid to late 1980s. You don't see it as a widespread concept till the 1990s. Basically, when I was going through school, I was the first generation of young people to be surrounded with this idea that you should follow your passion. Mm. So it's recent. It's not yep. the way that we thought about okay, careers good. or right, career right satisfaction. Surprise, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, right. So it's quite recent. And you can actually track it back. There's a combination of a lot of factors. Richard Bowles, What Color Is Your Parachute? You have the Bill Moyer special at the Skywalker Ranch that popularized Joseph Campbell's notion of following your bliss. All of these things happened in the late 70s, early 1980s, at the same time that we had economic disruption that meant that there was a lot more mobility in the workforce. There was a lot more knowledge work emerging and jobs that would be 
you would move to get a job. The jobs were varied and new. It was complicated. Suddenly, it was complicated to figure out what should I do with my life in a way that it wasn't nearly as complicated before. And it was in that royal that some of these things came together and, and follow your passion came out of it. So it was pretty new. The other thing that becomes clear is that it is probably bad advice. Bad advice. Bad advice. If your goal is to end up passionate about your work, telling someone to follow your passion will probably reduce the probability they end up passionate about their work. Walk us through the logic on that. Well, there's a couple issues. One, the advice assumes that pre-existing passions relevant to career choices are common. So you'll hear when people talk about this concept, they'll refer to passion as an attribute. Like, oh, your passion as like your hair color, your height, or your eye color, or something like this, right? That Yeah, everyone, of course, has a passion. And all the discussion is just about what do you do with it? Is it the right passion to follow? How do you follow? Well, yeah. does your is your passion economically viable? Well, maybe you should sort through the small number of passions you've been given and find the one that's going to, you can actually make money, or you have to have the, the three-part Venn diagram of pat your passion makes money there's a need for it there's all this type of discussion Turns out we have no evidence that these pre-existing passions are common, especially for young people or college-age kids who are making these decisions. So right off the bat, hmm. if your foundation for your advice is that everyone is wired with a pre-existing passion on which career choices can be made, you are leaving out in the cold a significant majority, I would guess, of, let's say, young people trying to figure out what they want to do because they say, well, what is my passion? Yeah. You know, trademark, quotation marks, or however you want Puts to put it around. Puts a lot of pressure on people. Puts a lot of pressure. What's wrong with me? Yeah. I don't know what my passion is. Yeah. The reality is I think it would be absurd, this notion that especially when you look at how new and changing and variegated the job market is, that you would somehow be pre-wired for these particular jobs, that somehow that there's something in your genetics that says, you know, I'm destined to be a social media brand manager for a (laughs) mid-size, you know, manufacturing company. I mean, it's too simplistic. So that's the first issue. Most people don't actually have clear pre-existing passion, so the advice just doesn't apply. Second, we have this syllogism. If you're passionate about this topic and then you do work tied to that topic, you will, as an implication, be passionate about your work. That syllogism is the logical foundation on which this advice lies. That turns out not to be true. We don't have a lot of evidence that, you know, some sort of interest in subject matter is crucial to feelings of motivation or satisfaction in the work. If you look at the research literature, we know clearly the type of things that does lead people to feel very motivated or satisfied with their work. It's things like autonomy. It's things like a sense of mastery. It's things like a sense of impact on the world. It's things like a sense of connection with other people. These make people very motivated and satisfied about their work, brings them to what we might call a sense of passion for their work. It has nothing to do with the subject matter of this job matches some subject matter that in advance I had some interest for. And so when you really start picking apart that syllogism, not only do we have no reason to believe it's true, we see all of these counterexamples of like the passionate amateur photographer who's miserable, Mm. you know, when she opens a professional photography studio or the passionate amateur baker is miserable when he opens a professional bakery. I mean, Mm -hmm. those examples alone tell us that there's something more complicated going on when it comes to workplace satisfaction than just, I like this subject matter, and now my work involves this subject matter that was interesting to me. So what's the right path then to get to a place, whatever we define it, people want to feel passionate about their work. They want to feel good about it. So we know from the research that things like autonomy, mastery, impact, connection, these are the secret sauce, essentially. Especially autonomy. Autonomy, I call it the dream job elixir. 
in this book. It comes up all the time. I mean, if you have control over what you do, how you do it, and why you do it, the amount of intrinsic motivation you're going to feel towards your work is going to skyrocket. I mean, autonomy is just crucial to people who love their work. Almost any case study you find of people who love their work, there's a huge dose of autonomy. But mastery is important. Impact's important. For a lot of people, sense of connection is important. So how do you get those things? Well, those things are valuable. People want them in their job. So if you want them in your job, you have to have something to offer in exchange. That's going to be in the job marketplace, rare and valuable skills. And so the pattern that I found much more common when I study people who love their work is they relentlessly developed unambiguously rare and valuable skills. I used a metaphor of career capital. It's like they were building up their stores of what I called career capital. Then you can invest this capital to get into your work, the type of things that makes it passion-inducing. So if you get very good at things that are rare and valuable, you can leverage that to get more autonomy in your work. You're going to have a sense of mastery. You can leverage that to try to do things that have higher impact. You can set the terms on how your work unfolds. And so building this career capital as fast as possible is a much more reliable path to work that you're really satisfied about than instead obsessing about match. Do I have just the perfect job for some sort of intrinsic characteristics Mm. that I hold? And so this is essentially what I preach. And what you find is if you find people who love their work and you talk to them and say, tell me your story, if you say, tell me your advice, they might say, follow your passion. But what they really mean is you should follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work because it is really great to be yeah. passionate about your work. They right. don't really mean follow your passion. You ask them their story, nine times out of 10, they stumble into what they're doing. Yeah. They did not know in advance this is what they were going to do. You almost always wow. find interest, motivation, and passion mm-hmm. cultivating over time as they get better and as they put these yeah. skills to use. And so that book, that's why the title was so good they can't ignore you. This Mm -hmm. was Steve Martin's advice to aspiring entertainers. How do you become successful in the entertainment industry? Be so good they can't ignore you. That essentially was the formula I kept coming up with. That's great. And makes me think about that passion. What you're describing is or explains that passion is not the independent variable. It's the dependent variable when you get right down to it. Yes. It's what you're trying to get to and yes. you know, start with that. And there are a few things you can do along the way. Yeah. And it tends to snowball. So this is often missed. Mm. So there's this myth when people think about, let's say, even skill development, that you have to have in advance the a sufficient store of passion for the pursuit to last you through this really long process of hard work to get really good at something. That's the way people think about it. But the reality is, if you study these case studies, look at the research literature, is that it's a feedback loop. So something's a little bit interesting to you. So you start doing the work to get better at it. As you get better at it, it it becomes a bigger source of motivation. It becomes more interesting. And your amount of motivation to work even harder, it gets larger. Then you work even harder. Then you get even better. And as you get to each level, your sort of passion grows commiserately. And by the time you get to the top level, your sense of passion for your work is very high. But it develops developed along with your skill. You can basically forage for food along the way. You don't have to pack into your career journey this entire store of motivation in advance because most people are never going to find a topic in the abstract that they just feel overwhelming passion for. That's of course, never gonna there die. are examples, but we're talking about most people are not going to do that. Yeah. The other thing you said that I find really interesting is when you've made it and you have that passionate job, your articulation to other people is follow your passion because that's where you ended up, but that's not what you actually did. Yeah. I mean, they mean, for the most part, follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work. If you settle for something less than that, you're really giving up a lot of potential satisfaction in your life. And this is what Steve Jobs said. I opened my book on Steve Jobs' famous commencement address Mm -hmm. at Stanford. Mm -hmm which was misinterpreted as him saying, follow your passion. The headline in the Stanford Daily News the next day was, Jobs encourages grads to follow their dreams. It's not what he said. What he was really saying is, don't settle for work that you don't love. 
But he wasn't implying that the way you get there is that you follow a pre-existing passion. So I go in great detail in the book following Steve Jobs' path to a sort of triumphant return to Apple in the 90s. And it was all serendipitous and random. He had no pre-existing passion for technology entrepreneurship. He wasn't following a passion. He cultivated a passion. And then I found out after the book came out that in conversations with Walter Isaacson during the sort of the final years of his life when he was doing the interviews for his biography... Isaacson brought this up with Steve Jobs Mm. and asked him about this advice to follow your passion. And Jobs said, essentially, I think his exact words is like, look, it's not all about you and your damn passion. (laughs) And he basically clarified exactly the philosophy I talked about in that book is like, no, 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 you need to see what's useful. You need to go after something. You need to do something useful and hard. You will grow to love this work. And that's great. And that's where you want to end up. But this notion that you have some passion and the universe owes you a job that matches this passion, Jobs himself said that's Right. Way too simplistic. You know, that's also kind of interesting, isn't it? That certain things get labeled, this case, Jobs famous commencement speech. They get labeled a certain way and everyone, and that's the installed truth at that point. Yeah. And that goes on and on and on until I guess somebody like you goes back and reads the damn thing and says, yeah. you know, actually he didn't quite say that. Yeah. And you look at his life and say, he absolutely didn't do it. What I used to say in these speeches, if you go back and very carefully go through Jobs' life, and, and you know, I did. I, this was before Isaacson's biography, but I looked at, read a lot of his biographies. I actually talked to people in Jobs' life. I talked to the guy, for example, who owned the Byte store in Mountain View, where Jobs showed up barefoot with the original mm-hmm. circuit board for the Apple One and said, I want to sell this here. The very beginning of his entrepreneurial career. I mean, I talked to all these people. And what was clear is if you had gone back in a time machine, to right before Mm -hmm. the Apple took off and said, Jobs, let me tell you, the key is follow your passion. Figure out what you love and do that. Almost certainly, if he followed that advice, he would have ended up a sort of very popular instructor probably at the Zen Center there in Marin (laughs) County that he used to spend a lot of time. That's what he was passionate about at the time. He he didn't want to be an entrepreneur. Hmm. That wasn't his interest. He stumbled into it, but he saw an opportunity. He went after it. He developed skills. He did things of meaning. He built career capital. He leveraged that capital aggressively, and he built a life that was very impactful and very passionate about. This idea of career capital is, you describe it as rare and valuable skills. Yeah. Yeah. The analogy, by the way, in business strategy is exactly that. There's a big body of literature on exactly how do you compete more effectively. Well, you need uh, core competencies and resources, and rare and valuable are two of the most important criteria along the the same lines. Quite interesting. Let's bring us forward to some more recent work. We touched briefly on deep work, but also you've been spending a lot of time and you're writing a new book, but a lot of time thinking about digital issues and digital minimalism. And I'd love to hear more about that. So exactly. So that book came out in 2012 about careers. I started my professorship right around that time. Mm -hmm. And that's when I began a transition in my writing as I was really up to my ears in issues of technology and academic computer science research. My interest really shifted away from what was going on in my own life and towards, I thought, broader issues. And in particular, I got more interested in the impacts of technology on various aspects of society. So 2016, I published this book called Deep Work. And the argument there is that in the knowledge sector, we were wildly undervaluing concentration. And what had happened is we had brought in various, quote unquote, productivity enhancing technologies like email, for example. And these were inadvertently eliminating the ability to do unbroken concentration. And because we were undervaluing the value of this concentration, we were inadvertently actually sapping the productive power 
of knowledge work organizations. And so the theme of that book is this is a supply and demand problem. If you're one of the few organizations or individuals to reverse that and systematically cultivate concentration as a tier one skill, unbroken concentration, you're going to get a lot more return from your attention capital, if we can use that phrase. You're going to get a lot more return from the brains you employ, and you're going to have a huge competitive advantage. And so I wrote that in 2016, and that hit a nerve. I mean, that book has gone on. It sold a half million copies. It's really, I think it's touched a nerve out there that people kind of realize that's true. Yeah. The feedback I got from that book, one of the more interesting pieces of feedback was, okay, maybe we buy this storyline about what's happening in the world of work. What about some of the unintentional consequences of technology in our personal lives? And people are talking in particular about their relationship with their phones. And starting around 2017, I really began to pick up this shift in the public zeitgeist around this relationship that shifted from exuberance, isn't this awesome, to wariness. Mm. Like, why am I looking at this thing so much, right? Mm. There's this growing wariness about it. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of that. So my more recent book, Digital Minimalism, looked at those two questions. Why are people uneasy about technology in their personal life and what they should do about it. Mm. And so that's what that book is about. And just to set the stage, the book I'm writing at the moment returns to tech in the world of work. It's titled A World Without Email. Mm. And it's a fantasy novel. It's a fantasy novel. Yeah, you can can find it next to J.K. Rowling in the the bookstore, probably. But it goes really deep into the way that we've accidentally self-sabotaged productivity in the knowledge sector. And it has a future of work perspective that significant changes are coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. That 10 years from now, there's no way that we are going to be just plugged into email inboxes, sending messages all day. This was like I had a recent New York Times op-ed that basically made the claim that we are in knowledge work today, like where the automotive industry was in early 20th century before they figured out the assembly line. I mean, the amount of productivity on the table is massive. And we're just starting to realize the way we work with this tech today is giving us a terrible return on these brains. There's got to be better ways to do it. The book is about that. It makes that case, and it looks at people who are doing it different. People that are actually doing it different today already. Yeah. Yeah, and so how can you have a productive organization, often virtual teams all over the place, that have to be in touch through Slack is the latest hot thing, of course, but not latest. It's been around a few years. And there's email, and there's chats, and there's all kinds of other things. And so that's been hailed as something that really enables people in a virtual world to communicate effectively, which... I think all of us would say is important. Yeah. So how do we balance that? You have to separate tools from workflow. I think this is the fundamental issue. As a tool, something like email or something like Slack solves the problem it's supposed to solve very well. I mean, email is self-evidently a better way to send a message to someone than a memo that gets delivered by inner office mail or a fax or, or a postal letter. I mean, the problems they solve, they solve very well. Mm-hmm. But put the tools aside. What matters is workflow. And, and of course, we know this in the world of industrial manufacturing, but it, it holds just as true in knowledge work, even though we don't talk about it. What is the methods by which work tasks are identified, coordinated, assigned, reviewed? How does that happen? And what we've fallen into is what I think of as a lowest common denominator but very flexible and simple workflow throughout knowledge work that I call the hyperactive hive mind, where the idea is let's just hook everyone up Mm -hmm. onto some sort of common communication substrate. So we'll give everyone an email address Mm -hmm. or we'll put everyone on Slack. And we will then just work things out on the fly. Ad hoc, unstructured conversation, the same way that like a group of three people would coordinate on the Savannah to take down a Mastodon. Just, you know, unstructured, ad hoc. Hey, you go there. What about this? You come over here. Scale it up. And we'll just... Let it fly. Messages and Slack, and it's just an unstructured, ongoing, ad hoc conversation, and that's how we'll approach work. And my argument is that that is a a terribly ineffective way
way to take human brains and get them to work. So what do you need to do? Forget the tools. You've got to replace the workflow. You've got to replace the hyperactive hive mind with workflows that are more engineered for the type of work that your organization does. Workflows that help specify how things are assigned, how much stuff you should do, how work is coordinated, how it's reviewed. You know, these type of questions, the questions that surround the actual execution of the work. So you can get a much higher return on your cognitive capital, that you can get much higher return on all these brains. So the problem is not that email is a bad tool. The problem is that a workflow based on just everyone emails everything, everyone about everything at any time is a terrible way to actually bring a bunch of minds together to get work done. Because they're always kind of buzzing around from one thing to the other, oh, answering yeah. an email, well, let alone text which come in. Oh, there's a whole host of problems. I mean, the whole first half of my new book gets into it. Yeah. Well, first is network switching is a massive cost. I mean, so every time you... The hyperactive hive mind requires you to basically work in parallel parallel. Do the thing that you're primarily trying to do at the moment. Plus, you have to service these ongoing conversations. Mm -hmm. If this is the workflow your organization runs, you have to service the conversations or everything grinds to a halt. This is why it doesn't work just to say, let's do email free Friday. It's why it doesn't work just to say, let's have better norms. All the C-suite people I talk to, they want the answer to be, isn't there some norm that we can promulgate? that'll fix this problem. Mm -hmm. Can't we just promulgate the norm that you shouldn't expect a response mm -hmm. immediately? But that's not good enough. But it doesn't be, if your workflow depends on an ongoing unstructured conversation, right. these right. norms actually make you worse at doing your job. You have to replace the workflow. Mm -hmm. You can't just approach the workflow worse. So yeah, so the constant context switching required to maintain yeah. the conversations, I get into the neuroscience of it, I get into the psychology of it, it significantly reduces your ability to actually use your brain to produce value. So it's essentially like giving your knowledge worker a reverse neurotropic that makes them dumber. We think that these tools are giving us shots of productivity, but it's the cognitive equivalent of giving people shots of whiskey in terms of the way that it's actually... Can you actually me measure that? Uh, yeah, kind of. There's been a few studies that looked at, essentially, you can categorize IQ point drops when you're context switching all the time versus not. Huh. And it's actually somewhat similar to being intoxicated. So we're reducing it. It makes us miserable. Hmm. So this way of this constant ongoing influx of messaging that you can never keep up with and you always have to be participating with trips a lot of tripwires that have long since evolved in our social brains mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of years ago, and it mm -hmm. makes people miserable, stressed out, overwhelmed, anxious. So it's, it's also terrible for mm -hmm. just people's mental health. And it leads to a really sort of informal but suboptimal allocations of work. Like one of the big consequences of having completely low friction communication is that we have massively increased the obligation debt of the average knowledge worker. The number of things that's on your plate that you're expected to be involved with or keep up with is way past mm -hmm. where is optimal in terms of getting a return from that particular knowledge worker's brain. But when it's all informal, it's all low friction, it's all just ongoing conversation, mm -hmm. you're going to end up with two or three X more stuff stuff on your plate, then you probably should have if what I really wanted to do is to get the most value produced from this brain. So in the industrial sector, we know all about this type of stuff. This is process engineering like we've been talking mm -hmm. about. You know, how do we get the most out of our core capital resources? We care about it. We're not quite there yet in knowledge work. We haven't really asked that question. You're asking, but we haven't really asked we that We haven't. Question. And so I was talking to a, a professor recently. I was interviewing him for an article I'm writing, and he did some work on this question, basically process engineering and knowledge work. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so who else can I talk to? Yeah. And he said, I can't think of anyone. That's doing work on this topic. Just doing work on this topic. Wow. Yeah. He's like, I can't think of anyone. And he said, I don't work on it either. The book I wrote on this was the worst selling book out of any that I've written. <laughs> and I've moved on to write about, you know, analytics and AI and the stuff right, that's right, gonna right. that's gonna sell books. It's right. and you know, so Peter Drucker later in his life, in nineteen ninety-nine, he wrote this I think very important article on knowledge worker productivity that came out in the Claremont Review. And he said between nineteen hundred and two thousand 
the productivity of manual labor, the, the average manual labor, went up 50 times. And this was such a massive increase in productivity that it is basically the foundation on which the entire developed world rests. Mm. The value produced by that 50x increase mm. in productivity. He said, looking at knowledge work today, knowledge work today in the year 2000, is when he's writing this, is where industrial labor was in 1900, before we got serious about process engineering and got a 50x increase. And he said, this is the central challenge I think facing basically our society in the century ahead is figuring out now that more and more of our our economic sector is knowledge work. We have to get productivity increases because the way we're working, someone who knew him told me the way he saw it was, it was kind of like the inmates were running the asylum, (laughs) that we just are very hands-off on knowledge work. Just like because people are skilled and because they're educated, we don't really want to tell people anything about Mm. how they should work. Mm. But because of it, we're essentially crippling a sector that's almost about 50% of the U.S. economy right now. The the thing that gets me about this uh, line of thinking is how we haven't even asked I thought about this question. The question hasn't come up. And now that you mention it and you reference Strucker as well, it's kind of like a no-brainer question. It's obvious. That's what makes for a great story. You wonder, you mean no one ever thought about this before? (laughs) No one ever tried to solve this problem before? Yeah. So I'll do a spoiler here. So I'm I'm writing this article, an article on exactly that point for The New Yorker right now. I'll spoil a little bit of the ideas (laughs) from it. Part of it was actually Peter Drucker himself. So he was the guy who really helped sort of midwife knowledge work in the late 50s, early 60s. He coined the term knowledge work, really helped us understand this is different Mm. and how do we deal with it. And one of his central points was autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. This is what's different about knowledge work versus manual work. In manual work, the laborer is really not thought highly of. It was all under the influence of Taylor. Break it up into tasks. Have a couple smart managers figure out the optimal way to do the tasks. Tell the worker. Right. That's Frederick Taylor, the that's Frederick father Taylor. of scientific management. So, yeah, and this was the foundation of a part of this 50X. It sure. was that plus process reengineering, which is really Ford, and Ford is really very different than Taylor. I mean, Taylor is really about optimizing what you're already doing. Ford is about starting from right. scratch that's on how you do it. But that's, it that's where it came from. And so this was different in knowledge work. And I, I went back and read a lot of original Drucker. He was very influenced at this time by the, uh, I mean, a lot of this was, there's there's this uh, industrial engineering, the, the integration of science into industrial production. We have the Sputnik and the space race. He was very influenced what's going on in NASA. He's like, look at these knowledge workers. Are They're smarter than their managers. They're incredibly highly skilled. Well, there's no way we could break down what they do mm. in the steps. So he yelled from the rooftops, Autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. You must let them manage themselves. You must let them manage themselves. And that was incredibly influential. And that's really what's going on is that we have this mindset of in knowledge work, it's hands off. Yeah. They're the experts. Leave them alone. They're Get the experts. The leave them alone. My contribution And is, by the way, if you interfere with them, you're the guys, you're the suits that are coming down. You're the to suits. The yeah. yeah, because the guy with the slide rule in NASA that Drucker was looking at knows more about rocket scientists than the bureaucrat right. that's in so charge of the budget. So don't tell do. them what to right. do. Okay. Yeah. But I think the central issue here is that it's mixing together two things. It's mixing together work execution and workflow. And so what Drucker was really picking up on is when knowledge workers actually execute their work, that's skilled and that's Mm -hmm. creative and you can't break it down into steps and he's absolutely right. You can't take what a marketing executive does to come up with an ad campaign and break that down into steps. What lumped into that was workflow, which is, well, how do we identify what people should work on? How do we coordinate who should do what? How do we decide how much stuff should be on each people's plate? How do we, all of the structure that surrounds how work is assigned Mm -hmm. and reviewed, Mm -hmm. that got left to the workers as well. And Drucker said, this is where we get personal productivity. He wrote The Effective Executive in 1967. You, as the knowledge worker, should read books on how to make yourself more productive. That everything is on the individual. And my argument is you can separate out workflow from work 
execution. Mm. We're not going to break up how a professor does his work in the steps that provost is going to tell him how to do. But man, we really should be thinking about how do we allocate service? How do we communicate with professors? Basically, workflows can be process engineered without stepping on the necessary autonomy of work execution. You're you're, you're touching a nerve in my head because I've seen for years, and you're using the term knowledge workers, but high intellect organizations is another way to think about the same thing. So poorly managed. The two sectors that are probably the two most important in the entire economy are the two most poorly managed, healthcare and education. Yes. And education is not just K-12, it's all the way up to kind of where we live in the university yes. uh, world. And how about lawyers? Lawyers, it's, it's terrible. It's unbelievable. I've done some work with lawyers. It's misery inducing. And it makes no sense. Lawyers are great because it's so clarified. Like, if you're a lawyer, you're an expert in this type of whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. law. What you do, what you're paid to do, is to apply your skill in a cognitively demanding way, right? I'm going to figure out the brief. I'm going to figure out the legal strategy. I've worked with a few of the major law firms here in D.C. They're constantly in email. It's constant. That's all it is. Yeah. They're, they're constantly context switching. Mm-hmm. If I was a client, I would be... I mean, they don't mind so much because billing is billing is billing. But if I was a client... As long as somebody's paying for it, they they're can do paying they for it. They're but fine. that's not an efficient But they're miserable. Time. They're miserable yeah. because of this. It's, it's, mm-hmm. They're working at like a 50 to 60 IQ point deficit while they're trying to do... I mean, it's like if you ran an athletic team and said, you know, Philip Morris is our sponsor, so I want you to smoke. Like, this is terrible. Like, this is making me worse on exactly the thing that I'm trying to do at an elite level. But yeah, so we're uh, sympathetic on this. We're just about out of time. Can you share a story you've come across of someone getting this right or beginning to change the game when it comes to workflow? Yeah. So where you see a lot of this innovation now, there's... I can't find any large company that's done this. I can find teams in large organizations, mm-hmm. and I can find startups that are doing this. I'll give you just one brief case study just because I was writing about it the other day. So I was working on a chapter. I was talking about a marketing firm, small marketing firm, under a dozen employees, very remote in the sense that it's like California, Europe, East Coast. So it's very remote yeah. workforce. So their mm-hmm. communication has to be digital. They were running the hyperactive high find workflow. So it's just email. All they were doing was email, 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 all day long, reacting to email. Mm-hmm. The host said, uh, uh, the, not the host, the CEO said, enough. So he switched it. And the way they do it now is every project has a board in Trello. So Trello is a piece of software where you have virtual boards Mm -hmm. split up into columns. And on the columns, you have stacks of virtual cards. And you click on a card and you can have a lot of things on the back of it. You can have file attachments. You can have back and forth discussion. You can have checklists, et cetera. And they broke up all the work on projects into these columns. So like, okay, here's a column for steps we at some point probably need to take for this, but we're not doing it yet. Here's research and notes, things that have come from our calls, things that have come up in meetings. All right, here's what we're executing right now. And, you know, and then over here are things that were, I mean, there's a couple different columns, right? But but you, you get the basic idea. The way the workflow works is when you want to work on that project, you go to the board for that project. And then you go into the cards with the things that are actively being worked on. You flip them over. If relevant, you see what's going on. Mm-hmm. You add to the conversation. You make progress. When something moves over, you yeah. move a new thing over onto the board. And then when you're done working on that project, you go to another board. There's no inbox where stuff follows you. You go to the project you want to work on. And then once you're at the project, all yeah. of this information that's laid out in these clear columns and these right. clear cards right. used to exist as just individual email messages and threads mixed in with email messages and threads for a dozen other projects all mixed together into one inbox that was constantly unfolding. Now it's crystal clear. It's immediately structured. You see where everything is. You know what's going on. And the CEO said it flipped the script on communication. Mm. The projects don't determine when you talk about them by having messages show up in your general purpose inbox. You decide, decide. I want to go work and and talk on this project. And it's been great for them. They're significantly 
happier. That is a workflow change. He's right. not telling people how to execute these steps. They're not trying to break down, well, how do you come up with the ideas? Mm-hmm. How do you implement these ideas? That's still dynamic. That's still creative. That's skilled. But the workflow that describes how do we structure this information? How do we assign things? How do we look at things? How do we communicate about the work? That they optimized, and they're doing much better because of it. So that's a great story because that's an example of information that's being categorized in, a, in some type of logical flow. Yeah. It's being centralized as opposed to just endlessly decentralized, which fills up our inbox. And it gives the actual knowledge worker autonomy, go back to that word, to manage it the way they want. Yeah. Those are at least three of the winning characteristics yeah. I could hear just in that story. And it doesn't follow you. You're on vacation, you're home at night. There's no inbox filling up that you're going to have to deal with. You communicate wow. when you log into the board. Their mental health is you know, significantly better in this Amazing. organization. Amazing. Yeah. Cal Newport, thanks so much for spending time with me on the SIDCast. Great conversation. I know we can go another hour too, but maybe we'll do that next year when your book comes out. Thanks, yeah. Cal. Thank you, Sid. Thanks for listening to the SIDCast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.